This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. And we welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with a message that Jesus is alive today. Now today's lesson is Don't Leave Me Hanging. It comes from 2 Samuel 18, verse 1 through 19, verse 8. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talk Inc. could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tower rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with the tax-deductible gifts. And won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone. Or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13.16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com or catch us wherever you listen to podcasts. We're there too. Just search for WMER space Radio Bible Class with no spaces between Radio Bible Class. Well, today we pick back up and we finish really what I would call part two of the saga where David's third son, Absalom, has staged a rebellion or a coup against him. David and his loyal supporters have fled Jerusalem. And we saw that. We saw that he needed a friend and the Lord provided him one in Hushan. Hushan roughly saved him with his wise counsel because the wisest counsel that he had, Ahithophel, had now gone to the coup side, or he had gone to Absalom's side, and he was given Absalom's advice. And that's really where we left off a couple of weeks ago, is that David needed a friend, and we talked about being a true friend and not being a friend like Ahithophel. Now, we did give Ahithophel some credit because David had done some things that made him not a friend. We looked out that Ahithophel, though, had betrayed him as a close friend, how he had gone to the other side. And as David's crossing the Mount of Olives, he runs into Hushai. And Hushai tells him, hey, I will go with you. He says, no, you'll slow me down. Go back and be a spy for me and negate Ahithophel's counsel. And that's what we saw happen, that the bad advice that Hushai gave are not as good as Ahithophel's. They like better because he worked on Absalom's ego. If you haven't listened to the previous lesson about being a true friend, I would really urge you to go back because there's a parallel that I also cover between Ahithophel and Judas and how Ahithophel turned on David just like Judas turned on Jesus Christ. And there was a lot of similarities, maybe some foreshadowing as some theologians say. Anyhow, I won't go into all that again, but I would tell you, go back and look at that. Listen to it if you haven't. Most of you know all this started when Amnon raped Absalom's sister, his half-sister, but Absalom's sister, Tamar. And then David did nothing about it. He was a broken man. He was a frozen man. We talked about that last week as well, about how he just was so laden with guilt and all that he didn't correct his sons. And so Absalom took it in his own hands and he took Amnon out. He killed Amnon. And then he fled for his life. And then David eventually, after three years, allows him to come back. But he doesn't see him for two years. So for five years, he really hasn't been able to see the king. 
And there's this buildup. And during that time, Absalom starts winning the people over. He starts becoming a politician. He actually says what they want to say. And we did a lesson previously called Conspiracy Theories where Absalom's spirit, you know, he attracted people. It's like it's a spirit that is very attractive because it tickles our ears. It's what we want to hear. It also that Absalom's spirit wants to have power and influence. And we saw that as well. And then it is self-centered. It was all about Absalom. It really wasn't about anybody else. Like he said, it was truly about him, but he tickled the ears and he grabbed the influence that he needed so that he could start this coup. Well, today this coup comes to a head. There is a battle. David has had time now to get his men together and to stage a retaliation against this. And unfortunately, David faces his rebellious son, Absalom. But he doesn't want to kill him. He just wants him to step down and say that he's sorry and that he's wrong. But that's not what happens. So let's look at how this all plays out. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. We'll start in verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Bashai, the son of Zerubu, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Atittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore it is better for you, therefore it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to all of you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate with all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abeshai and Atittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. We're going to stop right there for now. As we've studied about David, one of the things we understand is that David was a brilliant military man, a brilliant military leader, and also he had Joab who was right there with him. Both of them had a military mind and they had had lots of success with God's favor. And we see right here that David knew exactly what to do when it came to organizing an army. He set them in three divisions under the leadership of Joab, Abashai, and Ittai. And underneath them were the thousands, and underneath them were the hundreds. So David had put a structure in place so they could move swiftly, and they could strike and win easily. But I want you to notice, there's a change that we see in verse 2. David says, I myself will also go out with you. David knew that the commander belonged out in the battlefield, so he could really give the orders quickly and swiftly. He didn't want to repeat his previous mistake that he had made by not going into battle, which led him into the downfall that had started with Bathsheba. But in verse 3, we see the wisdom of his leaders and why he's set those three men up. They say, no, you're not going out with us. You are worth 10,000 of us. If one of us gets slain, it doesn't matter. If you are taken out, it all matters. So you stay here. You give us the orders that we need from remote and we'll handle right on the front lines. Also, this is the philosophy of Tim. You can take it forever you want. But Joab and David were very close. And I think Joab knew and understood that it would be hard for David to fight against his own son Absalom. After all that's gone on and how he's seen how he's responded to Absalom, I think Joab knew that. And so that was the other reason why he said, no, you stay here. You don't need to see what's about to go down. 
But David was also a smart military man because he listened in verse 4 to his leaders that said, no, you stay here. So David wasn't stubborn. He knew how to submit to good advice. He really understood when they made their point that they were right. But he didn't give up his leadership. He practiced what I would call good leadership by listening to the wise counsel around him and making a wise decision. But to back up my statement about David not being able to battle against his son, we see that statement in verse 5 where the king commands Joab and Abashai and Ittai, deal gently with my son Absalom. David is trying to be crystal clear on how he would command this, and that would be to capture Absalom alive and not mistreat him. And all the people, it says, heard this command that he gave once they were headed out the gate. And I won't read it all, but in verse 6 through 8, we see that Absalom's army is defeated. It says that the army of Israel went out and that it overthrew, and there was a great slaughter of 20,000 men that day. But I'm going to pick up in verse 8 because I think that's important. This battle that killed 20,000 men spreads over the face of the country. And that's what it says in verse 8. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And then it says in verse 9, this is where we're really picking up, And Absalom happened to meet the servant of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under a thick branch of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between the heaven and earth, while the mule that was there under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man, Who told you? What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you, and Abashai and Dittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and then there be nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand, and he thrust them in the heart of Absalom, and he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's arm bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And we'll stop right there. Well, this starts off that Absalom is riding into the woods for safety on a mule or a horse. It's against the wise counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel told him, stay back and send out an army. And yet he was advised, you should lead the army. Remember, it played to his ego. And so here he's in the middle of this battle where he really shouldn't be. And so he's riding off trying to escape. And his lovely hair that we studied about gets caught in the tree. And he's hanging from this tree by the hair of his head. As all this goes down, there's a soldier that sees this and he reports back to Joab about it. Joab kind of chastises him real quick and he says, why did you not kill him? And he said, did you not hear what the king told you to do to not kill him, but to bring him back alive? I'm not going to kill him because I know what the king will do if I break his order. And you're not going to stand up for me. You don't have my back. And Joab said, I don't have time with you. And so he goes and puts three javelins in his heart. He goes to kill, but he doesn't kill him. And so all his armor bearers that are around him also strike him with spears and he dies right there and hanging from the tree. I really don't have time to chase this, but one commentator does point out that there were 10 armor bearers that roughly kill him, and yet he had defiled 10 of his father's concubines in front of the whole city under a tent. 
But look what Joab does after they die. Joab blows a trumpet. We see that in verse 16. And so the troops then leave punishing Israel and they come back to, to him. And then they all take Absalom and they don't treat him like a king, even though he is the acting king for this short period of time. They don't treat him like a king. They take him and they throw him into a pit in the forest. And then they raised a heap of stones over him. And in verse 17, it says, all of Israel fled, everyone to his home. In other words, everyone that was behind Absalom, all of a sudden, oh, it's over. The coup's over. We better flee to our homes and act like we weren't a part of this because we don't want to be killed by David. And then, then in verse 18, the Bible tells us and shows us that Absalom's conceit. We see that he built a pillar of him in the king's valley. And he said he did it because he didn't have a son to have a remembrance of him. So he built this pillar and he named it Absalom's Monument. And it would be for people to remember him by. Absalom's dead. He's been buried, even though he wasn't buried like a king would normally be buried. And now David hears of Absalom's death. We see that in this next section that Ahimez wants to take David the news of Israel's victory and Absalom's death. But Joab wants to spare him the burden of being the person that brings the bad news to David and possibly even losing his life because that's happened before. Instead, a Cushite is sent and it's sent back to David to let him know that the battle's been won. It's safe. Uh, all of Israel's going back to their home. Eventually, Joab gives in and lets Ahimez run and he outruns the Cushite and he gets to David first. As he arrives, David wants to know, is Absalom safe? He knows with him returning, that means the battle's over, but is his son safe? And he asked that very question. He asked, is Absalom safe? This was only David's concern. He should have been more concerned for Israel as a nation than a traitor son that did a coup against him. But that wasn't the case. But it also shows the great love between a son and a father, no matter what happens. And it should give us encouragement that when we are traitors to Jesus Christ, who went and died on the cross for us, that he's like David, that he's concerned about us, even though we've turned against him. Romans 5.8 tells us that God showed his great love for us by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were still living and enjoying our sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our mind, we were by nature children of wrath. That means we were against God, like the rest of mankind. But listen to verse 4. This is the picture that we see with David and his son and his concern. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. We see how much David loved his son. Even though he was willing to kill him, David loved him enough to be concerned about him and try to take him alive and wants to know what happened to him. If we, in a fallen state that we live in, can have that kind of compassion, we just can't understand how much more compassion God has for us. And that is the beautiful picture here, even as sad as this part of the scripture is. Well, then the Cushite comes in, and unfortunately, the Cushite does tell the king that his son was dead. Without saying it directly, the Cushite told David that Absalom was dead. And we see the love that David had for his son. When we look at verse 33, we see his great mourning. Read verse 33 with me real quick. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. 
And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I know you can hear the grief and the mourning and the passion that is in there that he's lost his son. No parent should have to grieve over the loss of their child. It wasn't designed to be that way, but unfortunately life does that to us at times. But when you read this compassion and this mourning, there are some things that the commentators point out. And it's that David had this deep movement or this this uh, deep sorrow because he knew that his parenting was not what it should have been. It's because he knew the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah set all this off because the prophet Nathan had told him that would happen. In 2 Samuel 12, 10 and 11, Nathan tells him, The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I will raise up an adversity against you from your own house. And David also mourned deeply because he knew that his sinful indulgence, even though sometimes were smaller than most that are written here in the Bible, were an example that set before his child and his child had taken the example of his sinful acts and then acted on it just like he had done. How many parents stay up at night and pray for that child because they wish that they had acted differently, that they had lived out the Bible differently in front of them? It's not just good enough to bring up your child in the church. It's to bring up your child in the Lord. And you do that by living in a godly example in front of them. Does that mean you won't have sin, that you won't mess up in front of them? Absolutely not. But we have to strive every day to look more like Jesus every single day. And David's mourning is from some of that. He knows that the way he acted, the way he rebelled against God led to this. And then my last point that I'll make before we talk about the rebuke that Joab gives him is that David said, if I'd only died in your place, David wanted to die in the place of his rebellious son. David couldn't do what God did do for us by sending his son Jesus to die in the place of us as rebellious sinners that I've read about. David couldn't do what God loved us and was able to do. If you'll flip the page over to chapter 19, we see Joab's rebuke against David. David is in deep mourning. He's been weeping and he's mourning over his son Absalom. And listen to what Joab tells him. Look at verse 1 with me. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole in the city that day as people steal, and who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into his house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the face of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, that you would be pleased. Now therefore arise and go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate, and all the people came before the king. So what we see right in verse 1 is that 
it turned from a victorious day into a mourning day. And this wasn't good. David's loyal and sacrificing supporters won that day, and they won for the glory of God and the good of Israel. But then they felt bad about the victory because David was overcome with this deep mourning and weeping for his son Absalom, who had tried to kill all of them. You may be saying, Tim, isn't this a little bit harsh on David because he just lost his son? This is the very son that would have mourned none, zero, nilt, nothing would have been mourned over David if he would have been able to catch him and kill him like he was planning on doing. I don't want to sound cold-hearted because I just showed you this is a picture of God's love for us. The mourning should be there, but it shouldn't have been so public and so widespread. But I also want you to hear about the phrase that is very similar today. There was looting going on. When David's excessive sorrow was going on, people went into the city and they stole things because they were ashamed. They were like, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't right. Something's wrong. So instead of being happy and victorious, there's looting going on. Same thing that we see today, uh, sadly, in our society. It happened back then. And all this is happening because David has this excessive mourning going on. And let me be clear, God is not against feelings, not at all. Many Christians lack deep and profound feelings and experience in their walk with God. But God also doesn't want us to work and walk in his ways based on feelings. We walk in faith, not in feelings. Feelings were never to be a master over us. We will have those feelings, but they're never to lead us. We're not to be led by our feelings. And then the other thing is, I think David shows the people that he has forgotten that God is still in control. That this great victory was a victory. This, this win was a victory. He had many loyal supporters that had come around and stood by him and helped get this victory. But even more than that, that God had shown the grace that he told him that he would show him. He had shown him the mercy that he told him he would show him by allowing him to win this victory. And David had forgotten all that. But what do we have? We have Joab that steps in and he roughly slaps him back into reality. He takes him and he slaps him by his face and says, David, wake up. David, your excessive mourning is selfish. It's all about you. It's not about the people. These loyal people that helped you, all your sacrificial supporters, all the people that have come that deserve to feel good about their victory and helping you, you're making them feel terrible. So snap out of it, dude. But if that wasn't enough, then he uses words to put a dagger into his heart. He says, look, if Absalom had lived and the rest of us had died today, I think you would be happy about that. Joab gives him a sharp truth that is right at his heart. He's telling him that your excessive grief and your selfishness shows us that we don't matter to you, only your son does. Why did you even have us go to battle for you? But like any good inspirational speech, Joab also gives him a statement. He says, now get up, get going, get out there, engage with your team, encourage them, tell them thank you. They deserve to hear it. They need to hear how you're proud for them, how you're happy for them. You can mourn later, but go out to the folks that helped win this battle for you and show them that they matter. And we see that Joab's rebuke works because David gets up. David doesn't feel like doing this. His feelings had told him to stay locked into his room and just keep mourning over his son, keep wailing about how you hate that you've lost him. But David understood what was right and what was bigger than him and that he was being selfish. So he gets up and he goes to the gate. And that's what people are used to seeing. 
This is what the people needed to see. David sitting as king in the place of authority, sitting in the gate. And that told them that their sacrifice was worth it all, that they were appreciated, that David would continue to reign, and that what they had done was for the greater good. Joab's rebuke worked because Joab cared enough to say, David, be wise, understand what you're doing, quit being selfish, quit looking at yourself and look at the bigger picture. Look and put your faith back into God. We're running out of time, so let me close with this final thought. As we've studied David's mourning about Absalom, we can all turn and look to Jesus who died in our place instead. This very part of scripture that's sad because we see the life of a young man that's misguided die. See, we're all like Absalom. We are faithless and rebellious. We don't want to submit to Jesus. It's our revolt against him. It's how we want to live our own life. We want to live the way we want to live. We want to do what we want to do. And we only want to use Jesus when it's convenient. But that's not the way it works. And when we act that way, then we are acting like Absalom. We are being faithless and rebellious against Jesus. But just like David was the rightful king, Jesus is the rightful king who God has anointed to rule over us and who we should make Lord of our life. And he will rule forever and ever, whether we want to believe that or not. Take a minute and think about what Jesus did for us. As he hung on that cross, as David said, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom? Jesus is saying, would I have died instead of you, Tim, my son, my son. But then he did die in my place. He did die in your place. The question is, will you accept him? Will you accept the price that he paid? Will you quit being a rebellious Absalom? Will you turn to him today and make him Lord of your life? Jesus loves us even more than David loved his son Absalom, and he died on a cross for us. All you have to do is turn to him today and say, I need you to be Lord of my life. I need a Savior. I confess that there's sin in me, and I need you to come in and make me whole. Wash my sins away. I believe in your finished work on the cross. Lord, please come save me. And it's really that simple. Then we turn and we follow him. Does that mean we will sin no more? No, it does not. But will we strive to sin? No, we won't. We want to be more like Jesus every day. And as we walk that walk of sanctification, the Holy Spirit will help us to be and look more like Jesus every day. Will you do that today? Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Lord, as we looked at this lesson, it is really a sad part of a lesson, but it also is an inspiring part because we can see in this passage of Scripture even a greater love than what we saw for David and his son. We see a greater love that you had for us, that you sent your son to make a way while yet we were still sinners. Your word tells us in Romans 3 that we've all sinned. Now, every one of us have a sin problem, but Lord, that you made a way by sending your son to die on a cross, that he did step in our place so we didn't have to do that. All we have to do is believe on him. We have to believe on his finished work on the cross. We have to make him Lord of our life, that we have to die to ourselves daily and chase after him. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, maybe there's one today that's forgotten about that. Maybe they've gotten caught up in their own life. Even though they've tried to chase after you, sometimes they get their focus on them and they it's all about them. They're trying to do it in their own strength. Lord, I pray today that they would turn back to you. They'd get the focus off them and they put it back on you. 
And Lord, maybe there's one that doesn't know you today. Lord, I pray today that they would ask you to be Lord of their life. Lord, they will believe in their heart. They'll confess with their mouth that you are Lord of their life and they will start chasing after you. Lord, we thank you for all your goodness and your mercy and the blessings you give this ministry. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.